This episode of Crisis Talks is brought to you by the 2020 ANZ Public Safety Forum. This year, the event will be hosted by Fire and Rescue New South Wales at the Fire and Rescue New South Wales Academy on the 10th and 11th of September, and also be hosted virtually. For more details, go to anzpublicsafetyforum.org. When crisis strikes, organisations face a battle of survival under intense scrutiny. How they are judged depends on the performance of individuals and teams huddled in war rooms, working to provide a coherent response under maximum pressure. In Crisis Talks, I aim to capture the insights of people who have responded to a crisis and their stories of leadership, courage and resilience in the face of extreme adversity. Their lessons will help us all be better prepared to preempt and respond proactively and with confidence. My name is Grant Chisnell and this is Crisis Talks. Today we've got an international guest on the show, Regina Phelps, who's the CEO of EMS Solutions out of the US, has had 38 years in this field of crisis management, working with corporates on four continents across the globe, has written four books and is joining us here today to talk a bit about crisis management and in particular the context of COVID, what's happening in the US, what's happening here, and what some of the best practices they can take out of this particular crisis that we're dealing with globally. So Regina, welcome along to Crisis Talks. Great, it's a great pleasure to be with you. Thanks so much for the invitation and uh, nice to be talking with somebody in Australia. <laughs> now, I noticed on the tagline for your emails as we're communicating that you've got the, the quote, respect science, respect nature, and respect each other. I thought it was a really nice quote. Mm-hmm. Um, how important is that in the context of a global pandemic? Well, I think actually, you know, thank you for that. I, and thank you for noticing. I've actually had that only really for the last uh, maybe 60 days. And I really place that on, as a tagline on my emails is, and also on my LinkedIn is that I believe that we are needing to be reminded that we need to be thinking of all of those things. We need to be thinking about uh, respecting nature, because certainly when you look at diseases coming from the wild, one of the reasons those are happening is really because of wildlife trade, climate change, uh, deforestation and uh, degradation of the environment in general. And so those wild critters are coming out or they're being eaten and none of those are good. Um, And secondly, I don't know about Australia, but in the United States uh, in the last 10 years or so, there's really been a a push to really challenge or really frankly disrespect science. You Mm. see that in climate change, we're one of the very few parts of the world who still doesn't uh, acknowledge it at many levels of government and a lot of suppression related to that. And then lastly, um, is to respect each other, I think is really important. And I, again, I will just say to you that here in the United States, it's really become, the p- pandemic has become a political issue and that doesn't help. You know, we are all in this together regardless of what your political stripes are. And if we don't bond together and work together, we are going to be in freely deep trouble. And as you already see by looking at the numbers we have in the United States, we're already in deep trouble. And part of that, I believe, is because we are not respecting each other. And certainly, if you understand the concept about wearing a mask, it's all about respecting the other person because you're not so much protecting yourself, but you're protecting the other person. And so that's why I wanted to add that to my emails and to all my communications. We really look from afar in wonder at times. Um, and <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, and, you know, I've, I've got some amazing friends, some ex-colleagues, some other ex-service people I've worked with over the journey um, from the US who have an amazing amount of respect for. Um, you as a leader in this field as well, got some amazing respect for, for some of the, the thought leadership that comes out of the US. Why are we in this situation? Why are you guys in this situation over there at the moment when there's so, <laughs> so many great things that come out of there? At, yeah. uh, and we see some, sometimes some, some really abstract things happening. Yeah, you know, again, I have to say that the United States has become um, so politicized and part of it is we have a populist president and his style of leadership is one to really not to unite the country, but really to divide it, to divide and conquer, if you will. And you see that in his presentations and you see that in his speeches. And I mean, uh, and all of his rhetoric related to the pandemic has been a lot that way as well. And so because of that, we are not, we have no unified federal response. Uh, and what we have are 50 states, uh, everybody kind of fending for themselves. And it wasn't supposed to be this way. There are pandemic plans in the United States. They were created to have a holistic and uh, unified response, but they have really been abandoned uh, by the Trump administration. And it really left the states, frankly, to fend for themselves. And so you see that as other states, you know, there's no unified guidance on the, for example, masks. And there was a recent thing that just came out about three days ago from Goldman Sachs, a very well-established international investment uh, financial organization. And they said in their research that if we could convince Americans to actually wear a mask, that we would actually improve, improve the GDP by 5% alone, just that single task. Yeah. Yeah. Because people would be willing to then go out. There mm. would be more safety. People would engage in commerce again. So because we don't have this belief that this is helpful politically, I believe, what that's created is this incredible divisiveness. And so, I mean, that's I thought it was great that Goldman said that. And they, they mm. have extensive research to prove it. And that would probably be the same actually in Australia, that if everybody was masked up, you could improve your GDP and you could get people to reopen businesses and go back to work. And because people would feel safe and they would feel like they could go about their life just by having a mask on. I've read Malcolm Gladwell's book recently mm. and um, talking about cultural Good. norms and cultural legacies. What, what are some of the cultural legacies or cultural norms that are really the um, probably some of the backbones of what we're seeing over there or some of the causes or root causes potentially of what we're seeing over there with this divisiveness? Well, you know, uh, America is known for having quite an individualistic streak. And so we promote the individual more than the we, if you will. And so except for somebody's family, I mean, it, you, people really do think just about themselves. Hmm. I think people would be offended to hear that, but that's pretty much what we're known for is a very strong individualistic nature. Now, granted, there are parts about that that make it really good. So for example, if you look at entrepreneurship in America, if you look at yeah. the ability things done, uh, the creativity, uh, just the incredible things that we're able to accomplish. A lot of that can be driven to that kind of nature. But when you have a crisis, it doesn't work very well because we all have to be together and not stand apart. Although granted, in this one, we do want to stand apart by six meters <laughs> <laughs> or two meters, right? Two yeah, meters. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, so how do you deal then with the different, I mean, you know, from a, from the, your history and what your background is in, in crisis management, crisis communication in particular, how important it is for 
you know, a single overriding objective that's communicated throughout all levels of a response, particularly when you're talking about a, a corporate organization. Mm-hmm. How can you achieve that when you've got such a divisive cultural ba- uh, backgrounds in, mm-hmm. in, a, in a normal society? Yeah, you know, that's really a great question. And I think I think there are times historically where you've had that happen in the United States. And it's really been, frankly, about a particular leader. So if you go back to other times in the United States where we've had huge crises, there have been leaders uh, that have been the president that have really kind of stood up. Yeah. Um, uh, going back, probably, if you look at World War II with Franklin Roosevelt and even George W. Bush, who I was not terribly a big fan for, uh, he still, you know, uh, at the beginning of the right after 9-11 was able to really have that kind of unifying response. Ronald Reagan did that with several issues. So I think what you look at is that you look at a leader that can galvanize the country together and where everybody is willing to go marching in that direction. And it really is the their I think people need to look at the, the, not only just the force of their personality, but their values. They look at that person and say, yeah, I know that person's got my back. I know that person is concerned about my family and my community and so on. And they're able to communicate that. Um, and we, we don't have that federally. Now in some states, some of the states have had a better job of that. The governors have done a better job or some mayors have done a better job. So for example, here where I live in San Francisco, we're uh, 900,000 persons. We're only in 49 square miles. I don't know what that is in hectares, but 49 square miles. Yeah, don't ask me to convert. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, I know. And so, um, and we're one of the second uh, most densely packed cities in America. So if you've ever been to San Francisco, we're all yeah. kind of piled on top of each other, right? Like New York. Uh, mm. Only there's just less of us, right, than mm. in New York. So our mayor, uh, very early on, a woman, black woman, uh, first black woman uh, elected to uh, being a mayor here in San Francisco, London Breed. She's fabulous. She basically listened to science. She basically knew the the difficulties that we would have because we're all crammed together. And so we locked down early. We have we still are, mar- you know, marginally active, but people are very respectful. Everybody wears a mask. We're all kind of in this together. We all kind of know if you don't do you do it or I don't do it, we're all going to be in trouble. And it's a totally different vibe here because we're all kind of thinking of I'm helping you. You're helping me. We're all in this together. We shop yeah. for each other. You know, yeah. I mean, right. It's <laughs> where you want still- to be. Yeah. And that goes back to crisis leadership, right? You need a really solid grounded person uh, to lead. I'm interested in that, in digging into that a little bit further, because you know you've got the 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 dynamics of a federation model. Um, mm-hmm. You've got the the geographic spread that you've got um, both the US and also the same sort of issue for here. Although, albeit we've got obviously less states and territories here in in Australia, but I think a, a real challenge we found over here early was the multiple voices, which mm-hmm. communicating sometimes slightly different messages, which um, has a potential then to undermine confidence from the community in their leadership. So how much has that really played a part here in, you know, sorry, particularly you in the US, how much has that played a part over there, given the Federation model? Yeah, you know, I think that's a, an interesting question. And I, and I think what I would say to you is that it, it's even furthermore complicated because, because of the challenge of people viewing science now. So I don't know about Australia, but we have a large number of people here in America that have become 
very interested in the anti-vax movement recently. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So so they're doubting science to begin with. So that that overshadows, frankly, a lot of it. And then I think what even further challenges it is that science is not, you know, it's not perfect. Like we don't know all the answers right mm. now. And so because we don't know all the answers, it's constantly changing because you learn more than you can say something different because now you know more, something more now than you knew in February. Yeah. So then what happens, I think, to the to the citizen who is kind of an average background and they may, they think like, well, gosh, they don't know what they're doing or they can't or they can't they can't uh, you know, uh, they can never tell the story straight uh, two times in a row. And part of it is, frankly, is that the it's a it's an issue about the fact that the science and the knowledge is evolving. That's a huge mm -hmm. issue. But then secondarily, I want I, I think sometimes the way the information is delivered about a very complex topic and it's going on right now. So, for example, you might have seen very recently about 293 scientists who all signed an affidavit saying that coronavirus is uh, spread through the air. Well, okay, so, but we've known that, right? So there's two ways that it's spread. One is through large drop droplets, right? Respiratory droplets when you cough or you sneeze or you sing or something like that. Big particles, you can see those, right? <laughs> right? But it's yeah. also spread, people believe, and scientists are beginning to increasingly believe that it's spread by aerosolization. So aeros aerosolized drops you can't see. Yeah. You're speaking, you can't Micro see droplets, it. yeah. Right, right? So, but if you look at the news coverage in the last five days, uh, it's all been about, oh my gosh, now scientists believe that it's actually spread through the air. But isn't that kind of confusing because it's droplets mm. and it's aerosolized you know, moisture, right? And so, but if the average person listening to that, if they didn't peel that back to go through droplets and then aerosolized moisture, what would you think? Well, my God, they don't know what they're talking about, right? Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm. So that also makes it really hard. So I, I think some of that issue is uh, communicators who don't clearly understand well enough how to communicate complicated information in a way that people can understand. And that's, that's, you're seeing that in the media right now, but you're also seeing it with leaders, communicators. Uh, and so I think that right now we need to be able to boil things down in a way that's appropriate, but people still get it. Yeah, I think that's the real challenge for any communicator and particularly any leader mm -hmm. in a crisis. So we've seen that here with the uh, um, with the communications through to some of the multicultural components to our society. Sure. Um, and the impact that that's had is that, that a lot of the messaging, despite it being on all the media, despite it being quite obvious about what's happening across the board, people assume through that that everyone's getting the message. Mm. Uh, it really brings back home the importance of, of, um, of thinking about your audience, thinking about your end, uh, end user, uh, thinking about your end customer, thinking about the the end person in a society, and communicating down to that level so they can understand simply and easily what's going on. Mm -hmm. how, how have you seen that work effectively? What's been some good examples of where you've seen it? You mentioned before about the governor um, from from San Francisco. Is it the governor or the mayor that you mentioned it's before? It's the mayor. The, the mayor. mayor of San excuse me. Um, have you seen other sure. examples of what good looks like that you can share with with some of the team? You know, I think, I think well, again, I, I would say there's been several, a handful of governors. So the state of California has a good governor, gov, a governor, a governor Gavin Newsom. Also in New York, Andrew Cuomo's done a good job. But he's been very clear 
uh, during the course of the crisis, communicating data, and where appropriate having displays so that you could actually see not just the, you know, hear the words, but you could see the numbers or whatever that met. So I think they've done a good job, uh, again, for complex topics. I think I've also seen some uh, leaders, uh, both um, with our health crisis in corporations, but I've also seen leaders stepping up more also with the racial issues in the United States, the incredible racial injustice that we have. And that was really um, uh, set off again by the incredible killing of George Floyd and mm. how, uh, how just savage and awful that was and how it was witnessed around the world. And, 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 and people really began to stand up, right? And so I've yeah. seen more leaders, not just in government, but in business as well. So I think, I think it's, you know, part of it, Grant, I think is, you know, really being true to who you are, really speaking your heart, your truth, um, connecting with people, you know, I think, so my original background was in the field of nursing. And what I find many times is that people have a very hard time dealing with difficult topics. Yeah. They don't want to go there. They don't want to go there. But I will tell you that I think some of the best leaders go there. You know, they, you know, when it's tough, when it's really tough and like in the deaths that we're having, the hospitalizations, the people that are maybe surviving the serious illness of COVID, but uh, have a long road to recovery. You know, people don't want to be in that, be with somebody who's in that misery. But if you can actually have a leader who can do that, to be present in sorrow and sadness and grief and hold that person, you know, in their heart and communicate that, that is a powerful leader in a crisis. Yeah, I think empathy, that, that empathy for the, for the situation, empathy for the audience, empathy for everyone that's involved, I think is mm -hmm. one of those key components. And like you said, that vulnerability really mm -hmm. shines through in the good ones. What's been I think that's why that's why women, I think, and you know, in the world, are doing a better job leading. To be honest with you, because women, I think, have a, the ability to do that Absolutely. more successfully than men. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's, um, and it was actually going to lead to my next uh, next question was, why aren't we seeing more women in these sort of leadership roles? Because mm. you know that is really a you know I know it's a cliched trait in many uh, 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 cliched trait, excuse me, rather in in many ways. Um, but it's been proven, I think, on a number of occasions. We've seen the, the great example of Jacinda Ardern over here. Oh, yeah, fabulous, fabulous. She's done some mm -hmm. amazing work here. Mm -hmm. um, why are we seeing more women in, in emergency management leadership roles, crisis mm -hmm. leadership roles, or, or general sort of leadership roles, do you think? Well, you know, it's a really great question. And so I've been in practice for 38 years, as you mentioned yeah. in my introduction. And so I used, to, I used to be the only woman in the world, in the room, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. Historically. And it was... It, it was such a treat when all of a sudden I realized that, um, that, 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 that there would be more. So the thing I would say is that it's hard for women initially to get into emergency management or crisis management because uh, it, originally the, the, the route in was usually law enforcement yeah. or maybe or fire or maybe um, uh, EMS, emergency medical services. Uh, and it would, that was historically a men's job, if you will. And that's on the government side. But then again, when you look at business, many, uh, as that, as our industry was born, if you will, which was really in the eighties, again, because it didn't exist before, uh, in corporations, people were drawing from the public sector. So I think part of it is, is our, our, 
our initial way that we came into this work. But I think increasingly I see women in the field, which I'm thrilled, and I, I connected with as many women in leadership as I can on LinkedIn and other vehicles, because I've been around a long time and my, I want to support women in this work. And I will tell you, and I'll, you'll laugh when I tell you this, Grant, that generally I think that women can do a better job in crisis management and business continuity. Please don't take this personally. But I'll tell you why, is that what I see in my clients who are women is that they have the tendency or the ability, do you know how, you know, like in a business continuity process or something where you, you have to get people to do something? And that's yep. usually the case, right? You have to, yeah. people have to do something for you in this process, but you know, they have a full-time job and you're asking them to do a business continuity plan or whatever it might be. The men just kind of, you know, just kind of get frustrated with those, those people who aren't doing their work. The women know how to, basically be a they know how to ride the middle line between being a nag and a cheerleader yeah i yeah. know that sounds crazy but it's true and they can encourage people they can talk about value they can talk about what they're doing for the company they can talk about how it's going to be good for this person's career blah 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 and they can inspire that person to do this work where the guy just gets frustrated and wants to you know bonk them on the head like just do it right well that's not gonna help <laughs> no you're right I, I, i've seen that on on a myriad of occasions where right. where the the women are leading the way in in pulling those projects together so as a as a project i think it's fantastic but then how can we then create the leadership opportunity when things go wrong yeah so i think what i would say to you is that I think for any woman who's in the field who's listening to this, first of all, is that you have to be thinking about not only are you cutting the wake for yourself, but you need to be always reaching your hand back to help the woman behind you and bring other women into this field because women in this field do great. They yeah. just need to get in here, right? And yeah. the other thing I would also say for my male colleagues that are listening to this is they have to do the same thing as well. They need to figure out how can they provide opportunities for women um, who are obviously qualified, can do the work, but sometimes they just need a, a hand up simply because there are barriers to getting there. Yeah. A lot of times it's, it's not, it's a lot of times it might be because maybe when they're being interviewed by somebody, they might think like, oh, you know, they have kids or, you know, they have young kids, they won't be able to do late nights or be on call or whatever. And so they make a lot of excuses and they never even queried it's any of those cool. things. Yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> Yeah, I've, I've, I've dealt and worked with a number of colleagues over the years and, and through some of the more recent crises we've had, I mean, over here we've had a ridiculous year already with not just with COVID, yeah, but with the fires. About, yes, you had the fire. So tell me about, tell me what is going on with you and COVID in Melbourne. Yeah, so I, we've, yeah I can we've, pick on you guys a little bit. Yeah, yeah, well, you certainly can. I mean, uh, what we're seeing here is a bit of a convergence of a few, you know, real, of conver convergence of a few different risks. We've seen the um uh some some ha mishandling really if you like mm. of the of the quarantine measures specifically here in melbourne mm. which has led to close contact between mm. people coming in from international flights with oh. the, the guards etc that were meant to be looking after them uh, a completely different process to what was followed in in queensland or new south wales which was quite strict involved the defense force you know, really well escorted, really well supported through to the to the um, to the quarantine hotel. So uh, the process was really 
really well mapped out. It doesn't appear that that's um, been the case here. Mm-hmm. And in particular, we've had that breakdown between individuals, whether it be security guards or hotel staff, whichever it may be, having that close contact with a lot of those international, international travellers. Now, that's resulted in an outbreak. And that outbreak has then um, reached through different cultural groups within the communities in particular, um, because as things were starting to open up, the families are starting to get back together again, or the family living conditions might be such that, you know, there's more than more than uh, the, the traditional or the, the traditional white family home here in Australia, where there's a few few parents and a few kids and a dog. So, so that's where I think the that's where I think the cultural breakdown and the communications has also come through. Um, there's another interesting dynamic in this too, because the 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 uh, the Black Lives Protest movement mm-hmm. really did pick up internationally, and it was was extremely well supported over here. and And I think that's a that's a wonderful thing. Um, I think the challenge that it, it did present, though, to the authorities is that um, it created a, an opportunity for people to really see that there wasn't a significant outbreak as a result of the protest action. Right. Um, and that became then a potential excuse for people to say, okay, well, it didn't, it didn't actually break out as a result of this. Or, or if it did and it wasn't shared, then it created a real sort of a bit of a rift in, mm-hmm. in the government messaging. And whichever way you look at it, I think those cultural norms that people have, they say, well, it didn't actually have a major effect here. I can still see my family. I want to sort of you know, naturally start to socialise again and do everything else. All of those converge to the perfect storm that we've got a, um, mm-hmm. a second outbreak. And, um, and You're in a quarantine think, now again, aren't you? Six yeah, so we went into, uh, that's as of 12 p.m. tonight, we're in, in, a, um, in a lockdown again, mostly for the Melbourne metro suburbs. The border here between Victoria and New South Wales has been closed for the first time in 101 years. Wow. So it's... Um, yeah, it's going to be another six weeks, really, of of really going hard, and hopefully this time um, coming out of it with the right uh, the right suppression of this of this virus. I, I think you know the, the key lessons here is that um, COVID is multi is multilingual and multicultural and right. and apolitical. It's it doesn't care about where you're from, what you've done, what religion. What uh, what what gender anything like that it will it will attack you if you give it that one little opportunity. Um, we did, and we're seeing the outcome of it. Yeah, yeah, uh, and, and that's a, I mean the same thing has happened here in the United States. Um, uh, what I find really fascinating, and uh, and I think I was wondering if this was a messaging issue here in the U.S. But you know when the when the coronavirus first took off, and we really realized indeed it was going to be a, with us for a period of time, and it was a global pandemic, that the messaging on the part of the health officials wasn't completely honest. And I, and I don't, what, they weren't really truth telling about how long this was going to go on. Now, I, I hope your listeners really understand that this, this is going to be our life. Whatever your life is right now, it's what it's going to be for easily probably two years. Yeah. And that's, that would be uh, short. And there's a lot of stuff about the vaccines that are out there, but you know, to, before the vaccine gets into your arm, unless you're really special, Grant, and I don't know it, it's going to be, you know, there's a lot of other people in different parts of the world and also within Australia that are way on that list before it's going to get in your arm. Yeah. So, so that's the first thing. The second thing is that 
There's never been a coronavirus vaccine ever invented. Um, there's already four circulating coronaviruses that that have been with us forever now. They're endemic. They're what make the common cold is a coronavirus. Mm -hmm. They've never been able to create a successful vaccine for them because they change all the time. Yeah. So when we get this vaccine, if it has any efficacy, I pray it does, but still it's very likely you're gonna to have to get two doses. It's very likely you'll have to have maybe one every year or more often. So you should not be thinking like this is a short-term gig. Yeah. And I think that what I, I, I will be honest with you for myself, I mean, I fly 200,000 miles a year. I'm in front of clients at least two weeks every year. Mm. Uh, I travel a lot internationally for fun to places like Africa and India. I'm not doing any of that for the long and foreseeable future. And I, I had, a, I don't know, maybe I was 60 days into this or 90 days, I don't know. And I had kind of one of those like, oh my God moments, right? Like I wanted, yeah. I felt like I was gonna have a temper tantrum. Like I want my life back, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it, I mean, I'm sure we all moment. have, yeah. we've all had that, right? But I think what I, I think, I think people need to just sort of, okay, work through that and get over it because the longer we mess with this, we're not going to be able to have much of a life at all. Uh, and so that's what, that's what I beg my, my citizens here in the United States. Um, and maybe you guys will be a lot better than we are, but I mean, everybody so far is a lot better than we are, but. What's the, so the, the thing that really, I think, makes me question what's going on at the moment over the US is what's the, what do you think is the strategy? And now you said before, there's not really one, there isn't but, one. but yeah. <laughs> I mean, there is, to be honest with you, Grant, there isn't, mm. uh, there is not a unified response nationally. And part of that is, I think, is that Trump has really walked away from this. He's on to getting reelected and he's not paying really much attention, frankly, to this. And when he actually talks about it, um, he'll often say, you know, 99% of the people that get it are not very, you know, it's a very minor illness. Well, that's not true. That's not true at all. Um, and, he, and he talks, you know, like today he was saying that, you know, schools have to reopen in the fall. They have to. We're to do whatever we can to make sure the schools are open. Well, you know, they've already surveyed teachers in the U.S. and several other countries, for that matter, that said overarchingly that about 10% at least of the school teachers are not coming back at all. Yeah. yeah. Because they're fearful for their own health. And many of them that might be older... I mean, school, especially for young kids, is not a distant sport, no. right? You, you can't to have five, six, seven, eight-year-old kids and have them distanced from their teacher and everybody else. Yeah, that's been the biggest, um, the biggest challenge, I think, around the messaging here was around schools. And mm. um, in particular, we've, we've, sort of, we've sort of seen more recently again now where Every time, so we, there was always a, a government line around schools, you know, still being in play. So all kids at school, all teachers in there. Um, then it was starting to look at social distancing within schools, um, and that was to accommodate, obviously, any potential spreads, etc. Um, and but then we saw some early closures, some some mm. significant closures with some of the schools here, which really then started to force that debate and that mm. discussion around around the transmission in schools between kids and adults and and the kids and the teachers obviously in that context 
more recently, again, now we've got, we've, we had kids that went back to school just before the recent school holidays. We're currently in a school holiday period now. Mm-hmm. Um, the mixed messaging is still there. You know, the kids are there. Oh, the kids were t- meant to be turning back up to school next week. Um, they've now ex- extended the holiday for a week. Um, just before, and the reason being is just before the break, there was, again, every time there was an outbreak, either with a student or a teacher, they shut down the whole school. Mm-hmm. So if, you, if you're true to that messaging around it's safe for the schools to be in operation, then arguably you wouldn't be shutting down every time right. Right. There's, a, there's, a, there's a case or every time there's an in- instance. And unfortunately, that's what we're seeing. And, and the, the net result is, again, there's some mixed messaging around school closures or, or keeping them open, et cetera, as we're going, as we're going forward. Mm-hmm. Now, here in the United States, we've had, uh, I'm again, most, most, most kids' illnesses are minor. Mm. Uh, there are many asymptomatic kids, which is yeah, a problem same. because then they can then spread it to older people. But there's also been a disease uh, relatively rare so far, but I mean, a couple hundred kids that have had this inflammatory disease that's very like Kawasaki's, which is like yeah. a toxic shock. Yeah. And that is, I mean, that is horrifying, horrifying, right? Horrifying. And so, I mean, you have to think that that would play into kids, parents' minds about, Mm. gosh, they're going to school. And I don't know if my kid, I mean, there's no, all the kids that have had this illness, this Kawasaki-like syndrome have not had comorbidities. They haven't had lots of health related issues. You know, it was like the luck of the draw, right? Um, And so if you're sending a kid to school, you don't want to think, oh my gosh, my kid's going to potentially have a life-threatening illness. So it must be really, really hard. Yeah. Yeah. Look, we, we've sort of, we're on the front line of it, obviously with our kids, we've got then sport, which last night we had to make some calls about with kids sport. We were meant to start this weekend. Um, So all those sort of things are suspended again at at the moment, but, um, but yeah, unfortunately it's, uh, it's, it's a difficult one to navigate. How difficult has it been for the corporations that you're dealing with Regina? To, to interpret this and then manage mm, so their way through it. Yeah. So again, so in my client population, we work primarily for large multinational yep. corporations. Uh, I would say 20% of them are kind of in more physical related activities like manufacturing, but 80% of them are white collar environments. And, and so understanding that I just separate those two automatically because the 20% that are manufacturing uh, have been back at work, have never yeah. stopped working, or they stopped working for a short period of time, and then they were yeah. back at it, right? And that, that of course, um, they've gone through all the protocols, and they do testing and all of that, and it's still hard. It's still hard. Don't don't get me wrong. Uh, again, because of the community spread in the United States. For my clients who actually are in offices, um, when this first began, and we supported about 310 companies in the last five months, and the idea was, okay, we want to go back. We want to go back. We want to go back. Okay, great. We're going back. Right. Okay. So then we worked through the, I think we have a nine page checklist that is nine pages. You know, it's not spread out with a lot of white space. It's nine dense pages of things that have to be done. And the overarching was like, oh my God, oh my God, I have to do all of that. I mean, just even think about in a high-rise building grant, maybe it's 30 store floor. I mean, maybe it's a 20-story building. It doesn't have to be gigantic. Okay, first of all, you even just have to get yeah. into the building. And now you know that you only have four people in an elevator. And now you have to have, how do you queue up? And then what do you do with all the people? And how do you make sure that the lobbies don't get crowded? Just getting into the yeah. building 
is a challenge, right? And so then about this the stairwells and the corridors and blah, 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 blah. And, and, and so as I would peel all of this back for all of our white collar clients, I'd say, okay, these are all of the things that have to be done. I mean, they would just, they would try, they would think about it, they would work Can on it. Can we just do this? Go, no, Can we just do no. that? What if we do it this way? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be like yeah, trying yeah. to deal with me. Yeah, no, yeah. you can't trying do that. Trying to game it. <laughs> so then it would be, right. So then it would be like, well, it's too hard. I said, well, yeah. So my my opening line to people starting in February, I think I on my first slide that I put this in was February 10th. If it's working for you now and you're working at home, why are you going back? And I would say that to your listeners, why are you going back? If it's working for you now, because when you left the office and went back home, huge yeah. disruption, right? We all had to figure out how would you really have your entire company work from home? So now you can, most of my clients, when they have done surveys and all of my clients that we developed a survey, they send it out to everybody. And then, so they can find out how are they doing. The most difficult thing for them and working from home is if they have kids trying to do schooling and all of that, right? So I totally get that. But from the work perspective, they've been actually very successful. So if the, if the issue is it's working now, if I go back to the office, now there's another disruption. And if there's a problem, cases, whatever, then I'm back home. So the idea is you are just pinging back and forth or the potential to do that. And you've got a lot of disruptions. And so my, the metaphor I would ask your listener to think about is if it's working now, what you would be doing, if you go back to your office after all of these things have been done, you're going to basically drive to work to work yeah. from home. Because, right? You're going to be sitting at your desk. Uh, if you get up, you're, you're going to have a You're not going to be in meetings. You with, you're not going to be collaborating in groups. Yeah. <clears throat> Right, right. You're going to be on Zoom calls because you should not be in a conference room with your colleagues, right? You can't go to lunch with them. You're not going out drinking. You're not doing any of that stuff, or you shouldn't be anyway. And so therefore, yeah. why are you going? I mean, because everybody's missing their connection with their colleagues. Well, you're not going to get much of one when you're doing all the stuff I just described to you. So I would say about 80% of our clients of the 80% are sending only the people back to the office that either have issues like too many children, not enough space, whatever. Uh, but they're not sending back any more than gotcha. 10%. Yeah. Period. Um, have they discussed then the durations of that and what sort of alternate means that they put in place to, to facilitate that, facilitate that connection? Uh, that's the big challenge right now. I will say to you is the cultural issue of having everything done virtually. I don't think it's impossible. Uh, and I've had a lot of clients that have gotten pretty creative, whether they're, I mean, the, the standard kind of Zoom after hour calls that people have cocktails or whatever with their buddies. But they've also done things like on Slack channels where they set up, a, you know, a, 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 where people can IM each other. Like, what movies did you see on Netflix last night? I mean, the kind of things that you would talk about if you were in the hallway yeah. or in the elevator or things like that. So they're trying to find ways to actually have this sort of connection socially but also kind of professionally as well. Uh, you know, we're all smart people. And if this is going to be our new life, we just need to figure out what that is. But I also think going back to our conversation about promoting women and, 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 and other individuals, minorities into positions is that for those individuals who may not be so easily seen because we're all virtual, I think we have to be thinking about ways how we can continue to promote diversity, both in sex, but also mm -hmm. in race. 
um, based on the fact that there'll be people just simply not visible because of the virtual life we're living. If you could sort of outline what's what one of the best, I keep getting asked questions like this where where people are saying, well, what does actually good look like? So when you get asked that question, what do you say to leaders? Well, I mean, it depends on really what the what the good what the issue is about. So if it's about if it's about your business, if you're able to complete your mission critical time sensitive business processes and you're able to do them with success and without error, yeah, that's pretty yeah. good, right? Um, so I think it depends on what they're trying to measure. If they're trying to measure the sort of the collegial nature or the you know the mental health of their employees. I think that would be a more challenging thing to measure. Yeah, definitely. Because I think it's, I think what this, what the pandemic does is it really puts that bear. When you're in the office, your employer, frankly, probably doesn't think about your mental health or doesn't think about the culture of your company or any of those other things. It just is, yeah. it is, right? You're not, right? They only care about getting the widgets <laughs> out, so to speak. But now, but now, frankly, you have to be really concerned about getting the widgets out, mission critical time sensitive business processes, but you better be thinking about what's the mental health of my employees? How are they doing? And I've had some clients of mine that have really, uh, with, with coaching on my part, have really actively had their employee assistance program counselors work with, with yeah. their managers to really help them develop that more empathic communication style so that they can really connect with their people and their team. And so now I think from a management perspective, there's more expected of you because this is the, if, there, if you're ever going to try and be real in your life, this is the yeah, time. Yeah, it's the perfect opportunity to do that. So if you look at it in the, on the positive side of that, it's a great opportunity to, to connect in a different way. And I've heard examples where, where the, some leaders are really shone throughout this because it's taken away a lot of the other noise that they would normally have to deal with. And that's, I suppose, some of the great clarity you get in a crisis sometimes is that mm -hmm. you can really focus in on what matters most. And I think that's really mm -hmm. good. I also, think, I also think there's a humanness that yeah. you see when you're seeing somebody in a Zoom call and their kid yeah, yeah. runs through the, you know, the background or, you know, you see them and they have a baseball cap. I mean, you know, just there's a humanness there that actually I it think is. is helpful, right? Yeah. It's more leveling. Yeah, certainly it's um, and I think that's good. Right, so you're not all spiffed up and perfect. That we all have, we all have this. Yeah, and, and not every, and look at. I think there's an acknowledgement there now that not every meeting needs to be a home run. So right. there, there's a, there's acknowledgement right. that people are really trying their best to work through these situations as well. And not every not every interaction is going to be, you know, knocking it straight out of the ballpark. So yeah, I think that's a good opportunity right. for, for for some leads to shed some of those um, concerns they have and and show that vulnerability and that empathy. What? Mm -hmm. You know, the other thing, when you mentioned, when you mentioned meetings that made me also, you know, everybody's like on a zillion yeah. Zoom calls, right? People have Zoom yeah. fatigue, right? The other thing I think that's one of the things that I've really asked my clients to think about is that, you know, the easy cop out is to do, yeah. let's do a meeting. Well, do you really, I mean, do you really need to do a meeting? And I'll give you an example of where um, I think it's uh, is it kind of a helpful tool. And that's where to do, you know, like if you're trying to brainstorm a problem, you know, whether you're in a conference room or you're on a Zoom call and everybody's throwing ideas out. I uh, uh, recently attended a webinar about about asynchronous meetings. I never heard of that before. Um, and what it essentially is, is that 
you're basically doing brainstorming either uh, not as necessarily as a, as a group with everybody jumping in and adding on, but what you might be doing, you could do it two different ways uh, to sort of brainstorm a problem. Maybe what you do before everybody, anybody comes to the meeting is they have some sort of whiteboard that they use that's some sort of a, a electronic tool within Slack or whatever their model uh, tool is, uh, Teams, let's say, and you throw up all your great ideas. Just just toss good. them up, you know? And then what happens is then that you come when then you have the meeting and you basically combine all those things together. And then you start to see, oh my gosh, there's some really great ideas. There's some really wacky ideas, but everybody's free to throw them in versus being concerned about how they might be viewed or whatever. And the idea is that sometimes you can actually start to see trends or kind of interesting ideas. So the idea is that how you do meetings when we're all living virtually should be really rethought. How can you do them to make them productive, interesting, kind of invigorating, but yeah. different, not always the yeah. same painful thing. I think it's a bit like right? the Lord of the Flies, whoever's got the conch in a meeting or whoever has the pen in the meeting is the one that's yeah. driving it. I think that's part of the challenge now for leaders is they've lost a little bit of control and some of them don't like it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, I've actually seen that. I also find that I actually, I, I have to say for myself, I really actually run really great meetings, but I figure that people pay me a lot of money. I'm there for a short period of time. I have, to, I have to deliver yeah. on my deliverables. Right. And so I go into all my meetings with very clear, I mean, super clear agendas with deliverables. We're working towards yeah. this. Now, that doesn't mean that if some awful thing comes up, we won't go there. But I'm working on this. And so I'm constantly driving towards those deliverables. and. I'm, I'm always at the end of a conversation, I'll go, okay, let me circle back here. I want to remind you, this is what we talked about. And this is what I heard we all agreed to. Yeah. Is that right? I will tell you that most of the meetings I sit into that I'm not running in my clients, they don't, they don't do that. <laughs> it's, and so then it's like we had a whole meeting and then we, at the end of it, it's like, well, what did we do? What did we decide? Mm. Well, I don't know. And then, well, let's have another meeting. Well, I'm, no, we're not You're doing that. Me. You're killing me. Not for me. <laughs> You're killing me. <laughs> Right, right. I'm not, I don't want to no, live no, that long, right? You. Oh my I mean, gosh. It leads me to the last few questions here, Regina. It's been amazing talking to you today. So if you could speak directly to some of those leaders out there now, what would be that last one piece of advice that you would give to anyone in a crisis? Well, you know, I think I would use the pandemic that we're in right now. And I would really ask uh, leaders to really lead with their heart. Um, an illness requires you mm. to lead with your heart. Uh, I know there's many other business things where people are always in their brain, but I would really say to you that you have to obviously do all of the critical thinking that you need to do to accomplish the task, but you need to lead with your heart. People are suffering all over the world, suffering. And maybe they're not dying and maybe they don't have anybody that's sick, but we're, we're suffering. And I think the leaders that are gonna make the biggest difference really understand that. And if you can lead from a place of compassion and empathy and really understand that we're all suffering, that I think that you'll achieve great things, whether it's this crisis of COVID or frankly, any other crisis that they might be facing in the future. If you could meet one person out there over time uh, or that's, that's around now and that's doing an amazing job or has done an amazing job leading a crisis, who would it be? Mm. Wow. Wow. Uh, you know, I, I, 
I have to say that I, right now, I'm thinking about people that are, that have been involved in very difficult movements and they're both uh, dead, but the two that come to my mind, frankly, are Gandhi, who, um, look what he did in India by a nonviolent revolution. And how did he do that, right? I mean, I mean, I've read lots of books about him, but how did he, you know, how did that happen? And in many ways, the same thing for mm. Martin Luther King, who was uh, killed, uh, you know, at a very young age. And um, of course, the difference between the two of those is that uh, King uh, was killed way before Gandhi died naturally. But I think the idea that they had a, a vision, you know, I, I don't know about you, but when I'm around people with a vision, it is it electrifying. Is. I, I, so I'm drawn to people who have a vision. And so those two come to mind because, oh my God, they had a vision. And um, frankly, maybe I'm, I'm so desperately seeking that in the United States right now. Those are the people, the kind of people that come to my mind is I'm looking for, I am looking for that kind of vision. The great example is about one person in their own right that changed history. But is it too much mm -hmm. to ask now for one person to, to have that influence? Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know. Um, perhaps there still can be that. But, you know, it's, um, I will tell you that, uh, I've, I mean, I've ran a business for 38 years. And, um, you know, the issue is that the leader has to have the vision. But they have to have the tools to bring everybody hmm. along with them. And so I think you can still have kind of the point of the spear perhaps, but then that person not only has to be able to have the vision, but they have to be able to engage and bring others along because after a while, it's not you anymore. It's a movement, right? And it's no longer you, the leader. And I think that's the same thing in a crisis. We need that kind of vision. We need that kind of leadership, but you have to bring everybody with you. Because if we leave people behind, it doesn't work. You're absolutely right there. And Regina Phelps, it's been amazing talking to you today. I really appreciate you taking the time with us. I've been loving the work that you've been doing and, and following uh, intently on LinkedIn. So where can people go to find out a bit more about yourself and your organization and the work that you're doing? Uh, they can certainly, the easiest way is to Google my name, Regina Phelps, and that will get you to my my site, plus also my company website. And I, if any of your uh, listeners would like to link up with me on LinkedIn, just Google me on LinkedIn. I post a lot of material every yeah. day about COVID. Part of it is I am, the other part about me is I'm uh, deeply curious. I am curious about all kinds of things. So if I read something, then I'm not going to just read it and, 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 and not think twice about it. I'm going to I'm going to follow the trail, right? Till I figure out what's going on. So I post a lot of things that people have found very interesting, I have to say. <laughs> well, I certainly have. I, I think you've been a real trailblazer in the industry um, and in particular for women in the industry. And I think it's great to, to see a, a fantastic role model. And, and we really look forward to seeing and hearing a lot more from you over the journey. So Regina, thank you very much for joining us on Crisis Talks. Thank you, Grant. I appreciate you. Thanks so much. Continuing with our theme of international guests, in my next episode of Crisis Talks, I interview Clint Honeycutt, who was the Emergency Response Coordinator for the BP Gulf of Mexico Deepwater Horizon incident. We'll go through the preparedness measures that BP had taken in the lead up to the event. We'll talk about the immediate response, the use of the incident command system, how the teams coordinated and managed the major incident that affected the whole of the Gulf of Mexico, 
and the long-term impacts that it had on Clint, the business, and the wider community. If you've seen the movie Deepwater Horizon, then this will take you behind the scenes into the emergency response, and you'll hear some of the real stories of resilience in the face of adversity 